0: You are listening to Ethical Witness Preparation, a powerful witness preparation podcast miniseries from Holland and Knight attorney, Dan Small. Dan is an experienced litigation attorney who has written books, published articles, and given talks around the United States on the ins and outs of witness preparation. In this five-part series, he addresses the main ethical issues that arise during witness preparation and explains how lawyers can successfully navigate these issues while setting their witnesses up for success.
1: Any analysis of the ethics of witness preparation has to begin with the extreme case, the client who has committed or intends to commit perjury. In the previous two episodes, we looked at the realities of the situation and the four challenging choices for addressing it, what I call the four horsemen of the lying witness apocalypse. It's a real and a difficult dilemma, and there are no easy answers. We need a GPS and a tour guide to navigate this problem, and maybe a strong amber liquid to smooth the twists and turns of such a journey. Thankfully, many states have rules on the issue to aid our navigation. Unfortunately, many of them aren't as much help as we'd like. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Rule 3.3, Candor Toward the Tribunal, is one such example. In this episode, we'll take a look at Rule 3.3 and see what navigational tools it offers us. The first fork in the road is between civil and criminal matters. The rule states that a lawyer shall not knowingly offer evidence that the lawyer knows to be false. In a civil case, a lawyer may refuse to offer evidence that the lawyer reasonably believes is false. Next, The rule's comment says a lawyer should try to persuade a client that the false evidence should not be offered or, if it has been offered, that its false character should be immediately disclosed. What happens if a lawyer finds out a client has offered false testimony? The rule states that the lawyer must take reasonable remedial measures. Alas, the rule doesn't define reasonable remedial measures, but the comment does allow for disclosure, quote, If necessary, to rectify the situation. It recognizes the potentially grave consequences of such a disclosure, but it emphasizes that protecting the integrity of the system is more important. In the end, as far as civil cases go, the rule is fairly clear. The rule is much less clear about perjury by a criminal defendant. The basis for this distinction is the special constitutional concerns that such a situation triggers in a criminal case. Here, persuasion is again the starting point. Rule 3.3 states a lawyer has a duty to strongly discourage the client from testifying falsely. Advising that such a course is unlawful, will have substantial adverse consequences, and should not be followed. While it's hard to imagine a criminal defendant who doesn't know that perjury is unlawful, the duty to persuade is real. Few of us are as good liars as we think we are because our little white lies and casual conversation have never been exposed to the harsh glare of the courtroom. Clients need to understand that difference. If persuasion is unsuccessful, withdrawal may be the next option. Returning to Rule 3.3, we find two possibilities. If the lawyer discovers the client's intent to commit perjury before accepting representation, the lawyer, quote, shall not accept the representation. Or, number two, if the lawyer discovers it before trial, the lawyer, quote, shall seek to withdraw. Seems clear-cut, right? But relying on withdrawal raises important questions. It may be an easy way out for the lawyer, but perjury affects more than lawyers. It affects the entire system of justice. If an honest lawyer withdraws because a client intends to commit perjury, that does little or nothing to prevent the perjury. Presumably, the client will just do a better job of hiding it from the next lawyer, or, sadly, find a lawyer who doesn't care. That leaves two situations in which the lawyer may end up staying through trial. First, if a lawyer is unable to obtain permission to withdraw, the rule doesn't provide guidance on the standards for such a motion, but recognizes that it could be rejected. The second is that the trial has already started, and seeking to withdraw will prejudice the client. But arguably, a lawyer withdrawing in the middle of a criminal trial will always prejudice the client. So we have a lawyer in a criminal trial with a client who intends to commit perjury. What then? According to Rule 3.3, the answer is not much. First, a lawyer, quote, may not prevent the client from testifying. Second, quote, the lawyer shall not reveal the false testimony to the tribunal. Ultimately, the rule comes down in favor of client confidentiality, and the result, sadly, is perjury. The rule's only answer is for the lawyer to limit their involvement. It's the old idea of a narrative. Don't participate or actively assist in the testimony. Just let it happen. It's a strange and disturbing scene to contemplate. An officer of the court, an advocate for a client, putting the client on the stand to commit perjury, and then just... Standing back and letting it fly. Certainly, the attorney client privilege is an important part of our system of justice, but allowing that privilege to shield perjury is troubling. Is there really nothing more an attorney can do than stand by and watch the show? In criminal cases, apparently not. Despite this apparently troublesome outcome, what the Massachusetts rule does show is that there are no easy answers along this journey, even with the navigational tools at our disposal. In the next episode, Finding the Balance, we'll take a closer look at one of the many stops along this path, the difference between preparation and improper coaching. Thank you for
0: listening to Ethical Witness Preparation, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and I attorney Dan Small. To learn about Dan and his practice, please visit hklaw.com forward slash Daniel small.